Well, today we're going to look again at God's grace, and we're going to look at that in the context of stories about those who perhaps have forgotten their need for grace, or at least need to be reminded of what grace has done for them. Last week we heard two parables, and each of them were a bit of a comparison. First, there were people that had put in more time and more hours and had worked harder, and therefore, in their, uh, in their minds, thought that they deserved a greater reward than some of those who had done less. They thought that receiving more for doing more felt like justice. It was the right thing. And they didn't understand or didn't remember their equal need for grace. And then we heard about a religious leader who did better than most at following the rules. And he was certainly sitting at a higher level, if we looked at it from human rankings, than the ones that he felt the need to slip into his prayers. He started to compare them. He had a sense of superiority that was based on his positions and his actions. And in that, he lost the humility that we all need if we are to approach God. Because we can become forgetful people too. And my prayer for today is that we would remember that we would be gracious as God is gracious and that we would forgive as the Lord forgives. And that in the grace and forgiveness that are ours through God, that that would both not be forgotten, but it would be central to us in how we live a kingdom life. And that we would continue to be aware of just how much has been given and forgiven in us. And we often hear at the beginning of our services, and we heard it this morning, that blessing, grace, mercy, and peace be yours. And it's an assurance of what God can and does do for us in our lives. And as we hear his word today, and as we reflect on that, I would like you to consider how grace, mercy, and peace are things that you can demonstrate to others. And in doing so, reflect those same things that God has done for you. So as we hear his word this morning, remember that it is not our actions and it is not our reactions to God that save us. That is the work alone of Christ on the cross, but our actions and our reactions should be the evidence that that work that was done for us is rooted in us and who we are. So let's explore that together this morning. Before we do that, let's ask God to open our ears and our hearts as we look forward to hearing what he has for us today. God in heaven, you have shown us grace. You have forgiven more than we can measure. May you find us thankful and faithful. May we also be changed. Change us and mold us today in whatever ways we need, by ourselves and together. Speak to each of us through your word and your truth that we may be equipped to serve as your witness in our world. May grace, mercy, and peace live in us and be shown through us. Amen. I have two passages for us again today, and in the first one we're going to hear a quick mention of two debts. It's a two-verse parable and a question that are tucked in the middle of this situation and a conversation that involves Jesus and Simon the Pharisee, and it comes from Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. 
When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered Simon, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. ...have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. talk a little bit about the setting here. First of all, this picture shows Jesus, who is the guest at this meal, sitting in a reclined position that would be typical in that day. And these men are aimed towards the center where the food is, and they're propped up on their elbows, and they have their legs fanned out to the side. And then we see also in the illustration the woman who is kneeling there at Jesus' feet. And this was not unusual to have these meals where random people would come in and they would fill those spaces around the meal. And they might welcome themselves into these connections so they could listen to the conversation that was taking place or perhaps the guest that had been invited was someone of significance and they wanted to be in their presence. And this picture does give us a little bit of an idea of who the haves are in this scenario and who the have-nots are, who are in the middle and the center, and who is on the outside. And Jesus liked to call out these people that thought themselves to be the haves, the people that were the established religious leaders of the time. We heard about Pharisees last week. We have Pharisees again today. And he used them, interestingly enough, as examples of what not to do. So we have the high religious leaders, and he is saying, don't follow what they do. Not necessarily what they do, but the fact that they're doing it, and there's no real change inside of them. And in one of the times he speaks of them, he says, you are whitewashed tombs. 
On the outside, everything looks good. All the things that you want everyone else to see, all the boxes that you are checking, all the right things you are doing, like the Pharisee last week, standing in the middle of everyone, drawing attention to himself as he prays and thanks God he's not like those other folks. He says, you're whitewashed tombs because you look good on the outside, and on the inside you are dead. You are following all the rules, but it is not in any way changing your heart. And on the other end of this spectrum, this woman, Simon the Pharisee, simply calls her a sinner. And maybe we could speculate what that means, what she's been up to. But from the story, she's simply identified as a sinner to the level that if Jesus truly was prophetic, if he knew what was going on, he would have no business with her. At least that's what the Pharisee's mind tells him. She's not worthy. He says this to himself, and then Jesus answers his silent thoughts with a brief parable about two debts. One man owes 50 denarii, and the other 500. I remember last week we said that one denarius would be the amount of money that would be paid for a day's work to someone who was one of the full-time regular workers, or one of the master servants. So if we do the calculations here in rounded terms, we're talking about one man who owes about two months' worth of wages and one who owes two years' worth of wages. And Jesus said if each of these men were forgiven of those debts, who would be more thankful? And the obvious answer is the one who was relieved of the bigger debt. A bigger debt, a bigger forgiveness, Naturally, there would be more appreciation, one would think, for that forgiveness. So it's a simple story and a simple lesson, but the application that he's giving is right there in that moment. This woman knows who she is, that she is someone who is in great need of forgiveness, and she humbly shows that love for Jesus. She recognizes who she is, and that love and those tears fall easily from her. And then Simon the Pharisee, in theory, has been forgiven less, right? He's got a higher standing. He's been doing better recently. And it's showing in the lack of love that are in his actions. Because who is it in this story that is washing Jesus' feet? And who is it that is offering him these holy kisses of welcome? And who is anointing him? It would be customary for a traveler to come in off of the dirty and dusty roads and someone would wash their feet. Now, of course, it wouldn't be the master. You would have a servant who would do those things. And that's why when Jesus tried to wash his disciples' feet, they were appalled by that idea. He was the master. He was one to serve, not one to serve them. But that, again, would be customary that you would come in off the road and someone would wash your feet. And Jesus suggests that Simon did not do that, but she did. And she washed them with her tears and with her hair. And he did not greet Jesus with a holy kiss, but she's kissing his feet. And Simon did not put a little oil on Jesus' head, but she is anointing Jesus' feet with her perfume. So what she did, this sinner, the one who was too, long, or too low to belong with them, 
is that she washes his feet and anoints his head and greets him with these kisses. Her posture is much like that tax collector that we heard about last week, to be humble in the presence of God and in the presence of Jesus. So as the Pharisee is judging her, Jesus is recognizing his love for her, and she has forgiven her sins, and that is a significant problem. In the eyes of these other people, they would say, who has the right to forgive sins? And the answer to that is God, and only God. So if you sin against me or do something against me, I might forgive you and vice versa, but who truly has the ability to forgive the sin that's in the midst of that poor interaction? And they're saying that's only God. So in their mind, for Jesus to claim that he is God is blasphemy and a significant problem, and that's what eventually puts Jesus on the cross. Not many of these things that he would teach and that he would do, but the fact that he very clearly claimed that he was God, it ultimately got him crucified. And we might wonder in this space if these Pharisees even acknowledged their continuing need for forgiveness. Perhaps they felt they were self-righteous enough with all of these things that they would do that they had covered themselves. And they're certainly not showing the same type of respect and love, this extreme sense of humility, as is being shown by the sinful woman. We know that the Pharisees, in time and in this moment, are rejecting this declaration that Jesus is God. They didn't understand who he truly was, or they didn't accept that. And we can do that too. We can reject him when we are too far removed from that deep sense and recognition of our sinfulness that is what draws us closer to him. And when we no longer perceive that we are in need of grace, like this woman is demonstrating. She knows. Last week, the tax collector, he knew. And we need to continue to know and to understand that. I look uh, like this phrase that I drew from a, a study Bible from the New Living Translation. It said, Jesus has rescued all of his followers, whether they were once extremely wicked or conventionally good in comparison to the rest of the population doing okay. He is taken both of those sets of people, and he has drawn them in. So I'm not sure where you see yourself on that scale this morning, whether you're feeling extremely wicked today or conventionally good, but he has rescued all that would recognize that his grace is still necessary, regardless of any human scale that we might try to create. And the rescue is available for all of those who would wash his feet with their tears, those who would humble themselves before him. And be careful not to invite Jesus into your heart or your home for show or by virtue of what would be expected, like the Pharisee did. And in comparison the Pharise uh, comparing the Pharisee and the tax collectors we did last week or the Pharisee and the sinful woman this week, here are some questions. Has he transformed your heart and changed your life? Do you recognize the gravity of the gift that he has given you? And how does that affect the way that you continue to approach him? Are you conventionally good? And does that maybe blur your need 
for grace. The second passage of this morning is from Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. The title of the parable is The Unmerciful Servant. And there we read this. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back what he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Again, people of God, the word of the Lord. So what do you owe God? How much, if you tried to quantify it? Is it a little, like the Pharisee, conventionally or maybe exceptionally good? Or is it a lot? like the sinful woman or the tax collector. We're comparing in this story, this parable again, two different values of money. We have 100 silver coins, and we have 10,000 bags of gold. And this is the denarius versus talent comparison that I hinted at last week. 100 silver coins would be 100 denarii, 100 days wages. And if I owed you that or you owed me that, we could eventually square up, right? It might not be an immediate balancing of the books, but we could eventually get there. We could put a payment plan together, and I could pay you or you could pay me what was owed. And that's what the second servant owes to the first servant. It's a significant debt, but it's doable. And he begs his fellow servant to show him mercy right after that servant was shown this incredible amount of mercy himself. And the second servant receives no mercy. Now, how much mercy was the first servant shown? Remember when we talked about the parable of the talents or the parable of the bags of gold when there were five, two, and one talent that were distributed, that each one of those talents was worth millions. So how much is 10,000 talents? or 10,000 bags of gold worth in today's dollars. I looked at a few different sources and it said this man's debt was between 3.5 and 6 
billion dollars. That's more money than would have been circulating amongst that entire space in the kingdom at that time, which prompted some questions in my mind. What did this man do that he owes them three and a half to six? How is that even possible? And the fact that these numbers are so significantly different is really for effect in the story. It's meant to be exaggerated, to show just how much of a gap there is between the debts of these two servants. But for reference, here's what a billion dollars looks like if these are $100 bills stacked up on top of each other. We've got 10 different pallets of bills, almost the height of this man that's standing next to them. And apparently we have enough left over to, to build a couch out of money. Maybe while you're counting your money, you can sit there in that little couch of $100 bills. So if we take away the couch and we just take the stacks and we quadruple it, or we take this whole thing by six, that's what the value of 10,000 talents looks like. And that's our debt too fellow servants of the king, and the question is, how long would it take us to pay back the debt that we owe him? One of my takeaways from that parable is it's impossible. That's really my biggest takeaway. The debts were different, and the reaction was different, but first, we need to understand that the severe debt that we owe to our king cannot be paid off by our own efforts. Now, the reason that Jesus used these two different measurements, first of all, the talents or the bags of gold, is because, as we talked about several weeks ago, that's the largest denomination, financial denomination, that they were aware of. That's the biggest amount of money. That's why I asked the kids, like, what's the biggest that you know? And in that time, 10,000, the number that he uses, was their big number. So it's the biggest number they know, and it's the biggest value of money they know. He's trying to make an extreme point here that it is a lot. It is more than can be paid. And as I consider my debt to God, there's a question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism that is forever stuck in my head. Can we pay off our personal debt to God, the debt that is created by our sin? Even if we whittle it down a little bit each day, the problem is, as the question and answer says, we are adding to it as we are, if even we could, subtracting from it. Our sins add to that debt that we owe, the sin that is ours in each day. That is the reality. Our sin is not something that we could pay back to God over a few months or even over a lifetime. And then Jesus in the parable gets into some other numbers, some smaller numbers, but they illustrate a significant point. Peter comes to him and he says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Should I forgive my brother if he sins against me seven times? And even that number, seven, is very generous. Because if you look at Jewish law and their Jewish writings, it would say, if my brother sins against me one time, forgive him. Two times, forgive him. Three times, forgive him. Four times, forget about it. Right? You have been generous enough. So when Peter comes to him and he offers this number, the number seven, even that is being very charitable and very generous. Three is enough, seven is a lot. But Jesus says to him, keep on forgiving. And we chatted about this parable a little bit on Wednesday morning in our pastor's group, and I like the way that Pastor John framed it. 
He said as we move from seven times to 77 times, it becomes about the type of relationship forgiveness that you would offer. Someone that you love, someone that you are close to, and you would keep on forgiving. To forgive someone seven times would be maybe to think about, well, what's, what's the most I need to do? Or what's the minimum expectation of me when it comes to forgiveness? But it moves from something that we are supposed to do to being something that we are. We are gracious. We are forgiving, and we are loving towards that person who has wronged us. And Jesus says, stop counting and just be gracious. So why is forgiveness and why is grace so important? The first man in the parable begs for mercy, and he is shown mercy. And the second man, like him, using many of the same words, begs for mercy, and what he receives is justice. Throwing him in jail, selling him off or his family, or all of the things that he owes to recoup the amount of that debt is perfectly within the bounds of the law at that time. There are serious consequences if you do not pay off your debts. And without God's grace, we remain locked up too. And that's why we want grace, like the men in the parable last week, the workers were shown, and not the justice that they thought they wanted. Because justice from God in relation to our sin would be very bad news for us. So the lesson of the story is, is not just about forgiveness and lack of forgiveness. It's a warning about what happens when the grace, mercy, and forgiveness that God shows to us does not show up in us. When those among you don't get to experience the joy of salvation that we know, because despite the great gift that we have received from our gracious King, we are not willing to give that to them. It's not just that the second servant receives no mercy, as we hear at the end of this passage, in not showing that mercy and not showing forgiveness, the original mercy that was given to that first servant is taken away. And we must assume then that there is a connection between the forgiveness that we show and the forgiveness that is shown or ultimately withheld from us. The debt that we owe God for our lack of holiness, our sins, and our inability to live as he calls us to is insurmountable. It is a debt that is unpayable by his servants. And the good news of the gospel is that he places Jesus in the middle, in the midst of that space that is created between us and God by our debt and by our sin. And what we read today is that if he sees no grace in us and no forgiveness, he must and he does look upon us and wonder if we understand just what he has done for us, or if we have forgotten, like the Pharisees in these stories. It's in the final verse of that second passage. It says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Unless what we see in God's response to us is seen in our response to others, that sympathy is removed and that mercy is gone. We need to forgive, it says, or we lose 
forgiveness. And the truth is, people that need grace need these reminders. Jesus doesn't have to tell this story to the Pharisees or his disciples or the people that would listen to him at that time or those of us who would read that now if that was simply the way that we always responded in the proper, forgiving, and merciful way. Because we are no more able to pay our debt to God than the man who owed $6 billion to his master. Many of us know this passage by heart. It is by grace and grace alone that we are spared and we are saved. It's not ourselves. It's not anything that we can do. And none of us can boast. It is absolutely a gift of grace and forgiveness from God. And that grace should change our lives. And it should transform our hearts. Love and forgiveness should flow from us because of the love and forgiveness that are shown to us. We forgive because we are forgiven. Gratitude is reciprocated because of the generous generosity and grace that we have already experienced. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. We need to reflect what he has done for us. So I don't want you to be shy about accepting grace, but do make sure that we are also showing it to others. That gift, that removal of our debt, because Jesus took it on himself, should prompt us to share what we know and what we have received with others. To answer the burden that someone else is feeling from their debt and from their sin and introduce them to Jesus. Because we know he is the one way, the one truth, and the one life. He's the one way to freedom from our sin. It's him and only him. Because as we add to our debts daily, he's already absorbed all of that from us. And we need to recognize that and respond in grace. One more thought about responding to grace. I have these words written in my Bible. Uh, I came across them in a study when I was in a small group when we were living in Chicago, and it reminded me of these parables, and specifically that first parable last week when they're, they're thinking about justice and they're thinking about grace and who deserves grace and how much, and how much should I be worried or interested in when Jesus decides to give it away and who God decides to be merciful towards. And it's from William McDonald. And he says, the real question a believer isn't, does God have the right to choose who he would save? What we need to acknowledge is that he did choose us. And in that choice, we should respond with worship, the life of worship that we are called to live, to understand what a gift it is that he has given us. We are freed to glorify him in worshipful response. And invite others to come and see and to hear and respond to the good news that they too can enjoy freedom from their burdens. And they too can come into fellowship with God through the obedience of his son. So don't just show grace when it's needed or when it's necessary or when it's expected, but share it generously along with God's great story of grace. Please join me in prayer. Thank you, God, for lifting our debt. Life can be overwhelming. 
Our deficiencies and our inabilities can be a significant weight that we carry with us. But in you there is grace, and in you there is mercy, and there is peace. May we demonstrate the same grace that saves each of us as we encounter those around us. May we humbly draw near to you and introduce others to the one who not only takes that debt from us, but would stoop to wash our feet, to greet us with a holy kiss, to anoint our heads with oil as unworthy as we are because we are his chosen people, his beloved children. Lord, shine your face on us and shine your love through us. Amen.